If you could stand with me one more time, I'd love to stand as we read God's word out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We start at verse 1 and I'll read down through verse 11. We'll kind of focus in on verses 3 through 11, uh, but I'd like to read the first whole section. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, Paul writes this to this waffling church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come to your word thankful for what we find here and for what we're about to, to discover. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Otherwise, we'll hear only the meanderings of a man, and that would be a dreadful waste of our time. So, Father, help us this morning to understand and hear you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you are being accused of a crime. Not any crime. Uh, You're being accused for the rape and murder of a small child in your hometown. You didn't do it. You're innocent. Uh, But your hometown's small. Everybody knows you. Everywhere you go, there's this air of suspicion around you. The child in the accusation uh, is well known. In fact, the child's father is the mayor of this town. He's well liked. He's involved in many civic activities. He's got a lot of friends. And there's, so there's a sense of prominence kind of around the ugliness of all these accusations. In addition to that, the national news has kind of picked up on this story. And everywhere you go, whether it's your house, whether you're, you're going to work, uh, whether it's in front of the courthouse, there, is, there are reporters, there are uh, vans, there are uh, satellites, there are microphones being stuck in your face. Everywhere you go, there's a story. You've hired a lawyer to defend you, and the big day of the trial is here. The courtroom is packed. It's hot that day. 
The prosecutor stands up and he delivers all of the charges against you and they are gruesome. He puts pictures of the little girl up on the stand. He points his finger at you and says, it was him, he did it. The sobs of the mother can be heard kind of in the background. It's sad. Your lawyer stands up to plead your case. He rises confidently from his seat and simply says, my client didn't do it. And he sits back down. No witnesses, (laughs) no alibis, no phone records, nothing. Just my client didn't do it. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen? You better pack your bags for the big house, right? Because you're going up. There's no way. You're going to be sitting there thinking, what kind of a lawyer did I just hire, right? No witnesses, nothing. What kind of a defense is this? That's exactly what Paul did not want to happen with the Corinthians. Because there's accusations flying all around the city of Corinth. Accusations like, your leader didn't raise from the dead. (laughs) Jesus is not alive. People don't raise from the dead. The Greek mentality, the Greek culture that the Corinthians lived in said, that's absurd. It doesn't happen. That's just foolishness. And Paul's not going to be like that lawyer that just stands up and says, well, Jesus is alive and sits back down. Now, Paul is going to take this posture that says, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is very much alive. And I am going to produce the evidence, the rock-solid evidence, to show you that Jesus is alive. And that's what he does in verses 3 through 11. Paul's the kind of guy you'd want to be your lawyer. He understands what it is to give a defense for what he believes. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we talked about the problem with the Corinthians was not that they didn't believe a person's soul lived forever. They all believed that. What they didn't believe and what they struggled with was that a person's body would one day resurrect from the dead. They got the idea of a glorified soul. They thought when we die, we go in the ground, our soul escapes this prison of the body and lives forever. But when it comes to this idea of of the body coming out of the grave in some glorified format, they heard that, but it was kind of like, yeah, that doesn't really make sense, so we're probably going to say no to that one. It didn't process, didn't get that. So Paul is setting out his case, if you will, for why the human body will one day resurrect from the dead. Why, why one day we will be like Jesus Christ, we will come out of the grave, and we too will live forever. But before he can get there, he says, you know, let's start with common ground. You Corinthians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You, you do believe that Jesus' body came out from the dead. You believe that, but let me just solidify that in your mind so that we start with common ground. Because if I can get you 
to believe and understand that Jesus came out of the grave, then there's going to be this logical jump over to our bodies are going to come out of the grave because Jesus was the forerunner. He was the first among many brethren. We're going to be much like him. So if I can get you there, Jesus rose from the grave and there's no waffling on that point, Paul says, then I think I'll be able to get you to the point where you also understand your body will come out of the grave. So Paul offers in these first 11 verses four proofs, four evidences that Jesus rose from the grave, really rose, bodily, came out of the grave. The first one we talked about last week, and and he said the first one is this, you believe the message. (laughs) I mean, we preached you that Jesus came out of the grave, and you believed it, and it's changed you. Now, you have to admit that if that was the only one, it would seem a bit subjective, wouldn't it? You believed it, so it must be true. I could maybe get you to believe that the moon was made out of cheese. Would that mean it's true? No. So why would Paul lean on the fact that you were saved and because of your salvation, that is proof that you were, that Jesus came out of the grave? Well, I would say it's this. Paul has just finished chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. And in those three chapters, he has outlined for them the spiritual gifts that they've received. They were speaking in tongues, they were healing, they were prophesying. And I think what Paul is saying in these first couple of verses is, here's the proof. We spoke the message. Jesus was died, he, he was buried, and he rose again. You believed it. And when you believed it, you received spiritual gifts. You were doing, you're doing things now that you never did before you believed. That's proof that what the message we told you is true, that Jesus resurrected from the grave. So I think that was the first one. But he's going to give three more, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning in verses 3 down through 11. Three more proofs. The first one he's going to give are the scriptures. He said, the scriptures tell us, and by scriptures he means the Old Testament. The Old Testament's going to tell us that Jesus is going to die and come out of the grave. Secondly, Paul says, I'm going to present to you witnesses, and they're going to show you that Jesus rose from the dead. And then finally, the last proof is he says, it's a common message. We're all giving the same message, and because of that commonality of the message, it should be proof in your minds that what we're telling you is true. So let's look at these together. Let's start with the first one. The first proof that Paul gives, starting in verse 3, the scriptures. Look at verse 3 again. He says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. In verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want you to catch Paul's emphasis here. The very beginning of verse 3, he says, I delivered to you what is of first importance. What is of first importance? What does that mean? Well, something that's first means it's prominent, it's forerunner, it's, it's out there in front of everything else. This is the first thing, this is the most important thing that you must learn, Paul says. First importance is the gospel. The gospel. You were a sinner. Jesus came to earth, he died for your sins, he was buried, and he was raised again. The gospel is the first thing that the church should be known for. 
Folks, if there's ever a lesson that we should pull, even just from that first verse, it's this. The gospel has to be the most important thing that the church of God is known for. The most important message we can ever give to a dying world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we can bake wonderful cookies. We can quilt beautiful quilts. We can build houses in record time. And all of that is great, and all of that is necessary. But in addition to this, and before this, we must be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is of first importance. It is of the greatest. It's the most necessary thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I was involved in a, a court hearing recently, and, and I was called to testify uh, about the faith that I have. And one, the very first question uh, that the attorney asked me was uh, simple. Was it anything to do uh, with denominational distinctives? The very first question was this. Do you believe in God? Yeah. Second question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Now, why are those first? Because those are fundamental. If we don't start there, then we have nothing else to build on. The gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. It is the most important. It is where the basic tenets of the Christian faith are found. Do you believe in God, who is both righteous and just, who's both gracious and judges sinners. Do you believe in that kind of a God? And do you understand that you are a sinner? That you fall on this judgment side that that because of your sins, cussing and lying and cheating, whatever it is, you deserve the wrath of God. That's one of the basic tenets of the faith. You deserve his judgment. But then do you also believe that Jesus Christ, the only son of God, came and he lived perfectly? And do you believe that he died for your sins and that if you believe in him, the resurrected Jesus, by faith believe in him, repent of your sins, you can be saved. That's what we call the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Those are the things of first importance. I don't know about you, but I struggle a bit with the old saying that goes like this, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Makes me cringe a little. We have to use words. The Bible says faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the words of Christ. So we must speak the gospel. We must present the gospel, along with all the other things that we do and humanitarian efforts that we bring. We must speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this is the first thing you've got to understand. And he says, verses 3 and 4, this was foretold by the scriptures, by the Old Testament. If you go back and read from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, you'll find that the Old Testament scriptures predicted both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, where did it predict the, the death of Jesus Christ? Where did it say he would die for my sins? Well, Bert read one of the verses this morning in Isaiah 53. It says this, He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Later in that same chapter in verse 9 it says, And they made his grave, there's an indication that he died, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. If you read Psalm 16, it alludes to Jesus' death. If you read the book of Leviticus, the entire book is about the sacrificial system that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. How many of you um, do your Bible through a year program and you get to the book of Leviticus and you sort of, oh, you kind of derail. It's, It's a hard book to get through. But the whole book says there is coming a day when all of these sacrifices will be done with because there'll be a perfect lamb who can take away the sins of the world. It's all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It's the Old Testament speaking of the death of the Messiah. That's great. But then where does the Old Testament pick up on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, there's several places where that happens. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, pointed back to the experience of Jonah. And he said, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And he'll, he'll rise again. Jesus pointed back to the Old Testament. He says, that's a picture of what's going to happen. Paul compared Jesus' resurrection to what was called the first fruits in Leviticus. And first fruits were all of the first of the crops and all of the first of the commerce that was brought into the temple on the first day after the Sabbath. Now, if you think about this for a second, when was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was always the seventh day of the week, which was always on a Saturday. So the day after the Sabbath, when they brought their first fruits, would have been the first day of the week, which is the day we call Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate the Lord's resurrection, right? Paul says Jesus was like a first fruits. He, he was the first, and on that, that resurrection day, he offered himself. He was the first one to rise from the grave. It was a picture in the Old Testament of Jesus rising from the dead. And then, of course, there's a story of Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they ask him uh, to, to tell them about himself, and, and he does. And in Luke 24, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he pointed back to the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, and said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect So the Old Testament scriptures, Paul says, that is proof number one that we're studying this morning, proof number two in this text, that Jesus rose from the dead. The scripture said that he would. God foretold that hundreds of years earlier so that when it happened, you would believe it. And you'd say, oh, well, yeah, he said it was going to happen and it happened just like he said. So it's proof that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It isn't some made-up story. Secondly, Paul says, in verse, starting in verse 5, he said, I want you to consider the witnesses, people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is a common technique in the courtroom, by the way. If you're in a courtroom, an eyewitness account 
uh, of a crime scene brings the most credibility, doesn't it? If, if a judge can find somebody who says, yeah, I was there, I, I saw it, here's what happens, that gives the most credibility to the case. That's what every lawyer hopes for, to have a credible witness that saw what happened. Those are the best kind. So what will lawyers do? They'll, they'll bring in doctors and they'll bring in uh, accountants. Uh, they'll bring in specialists, experts in the field because if they can bring in quality eyewitnesses, then the judge is going to be convinced and the jury is going to be convinced. It must have been true. So this is what Paul does. Look at verse 5. He, he starts in with the big guns. He says, look, he, he appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve. Cephas is, by the way, the Aramaic name for Peter, right? It's the same guy. Everybody knows Peter. Anybody that would have been in the Corinthian church would have been familiar with Peter. He was, he was the forerunner of the disciples. He was, uh, in many ways, uh, the leader of the church, uh, of at least of the twelve disciples. He, he was... The, the front person of Christianity. Now, was Peter perfect? Of course not. He wasn't perfect. He denied Jesus three times. We know that, right? Before Jesus died. But when Jesus resurrected from the grave, what did the angel tell the women to go back and do? The angel told the women, go back and tell the disciples that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and tell Peter... Why? Because he wanted Peter to know that I have forgiven you, that you can be restored, that I will bring you into wholeness. And when Peter heard that, he became bold in his faith. In fact, if you look in in Acts from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, it's a story of Peter as he takes that gospel message and he kind of runs with it. So Peter was a recognizable name in the Corinthian church. And so Paul sort of holds him out there and he says, guys, if you want to know if Jesus resurrected from the dead, guess what? Peter saw him. He appeared to Peter. Peter is a quality witness. And if that isn't enough, Paul says, he appeared to the twelve. And the twelve, as you know, is the common name that was given to the twelve disciples. Of course, when when Paul wrote this, there were only 11 because Judas at that point had, had hung himself. Um, but the name, the 12, uh, was a common name given to those original disciples. And Paul says, look, Peter saw him and all of the disciples saw him. Those are good witnesses, quality witnesses. And if quality isn't enough, if you're a lawyer, you don't have enough quality witnesses, what do you do? Bring in quantity of witnesses. Bring in a bunch, right? So, so look what he does next in verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at the same time. Most of them are still alive and some have fallen asleep. That's a, that's, that's a great tactic. Bring in a whole bunch of witnesses that'll say the same thing. And this is just like God, isn't it? going overboard on the number that he needs. You know, in Jewish tradition, it took two or maybe three witnesses to establish the authenticity of an event. And God looks down and he says, yeah, let's give it about another 497. That'll be plenty for him, right? 
500 witnesses all at the same time. Now, can you imagine if you would be in a courtroom and the lawyer would bring through 500 witnesses, (laughs) every one of them saying the exact same story? Have you seen Jesus, sir? Yes, I have. Great. Next witness, have you seen Jesus, ma'am? Yes, I have. 500 of those babies, one after another. You know, after a while, you'd be like, we get it. We understand. Peter saw him. The 12 saw him. And 500 men and women saw him. We get it. That's overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. That's not all. Paul says there's more. Verse 7, he appeared to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus along with his other brothers who did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And it wasn't until Jesus showed himself in his resurrected form to James that James likely believed in him at that point. And James goes on to write the book of James and he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know James, he didn't believe either. But when he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, it convinced him. It ought to convince you too. Jesus appeared to all those people. And then last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a very humble man. Paul never glorified himself. He describes himself here as one untimely born. It's a word in the Greek that is the same word that's, me, uh, that's used when it's talked about a miscarriage. It's someone who's born at an inappropriate time, out of due season. And what Paul is saying here is all of the other apostles, they were chosen by Christ, they walked with Christ, they saw him die, And they all saw him resurrected from the dead in the 40 days between when he came out of the grave and when he ascended into heaven. And he's saying, I was born out of season. I saw him, but it wasn't in that same time frame. I saw him on the road to Damascus when I was a Christian killer. I was out to destroy the church. I was on the way to Damascus to round up some Christians and put them into prison. And that's when Jesus appeared to me. And it was so bright, it was so overwhelming that I was literally blinded by the glory of the resurrected Christ. And Paul says, I didn't deserve it. Paul is overcome by the magnitude of God's grace He was on his way to kill Christians and God reached down and grabbed his heart and converted him. Saul became Paul. And Paul went on to do wonderful things for Christ. It's interesting, if you look at Paul's life, even in these verses, he never forgets his past. Paul never forgets his past. 
And he always uses his past as a backdrop to show the glories of the grace of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you and I use our past to kind of sensationalize what we went through. Paul never did that. Paul says, here's what I was. Yes, I did that. But I only tell you that to show you how wonderful the grace of God is in my life. And by God's grace, he says in verse 10, I am what I am today. And his grace toward me was not in vain. There's a story that's told of a guy named Mel Trotter. You may have heard this story. Mel was such a drunken bum that his little daughter, two years old, died of malnutrition because he never bought food for her. He spent all the money he had on booze. On the day of his daughter's funeral, his wife went out and bought some nice clothes for their daughter uh, for the burial. And while no one was around before the funeral took place, Mel stole the clothes off of his daughter's body, pawned them at the local store so he could buy more booze, He left his daughter naked in her casket for her funeral. Later that day, Mel Trotter stumbled into a mission and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus and he went on to become one of the greatest evangelists America has ever known. Listen, friends, just like Paul just like this Mel, God is not a respecter of persons. He will pick the scum of the earth and turn them into the most beautiful picture of grace. And he took Paul, who was scum, who was the most despised of people, And he turned them into one of the greatest apostles of the New Testament. And Paul simply shakes his head in disbelief that God could do that. Paul never got over the grace of God in his life. And maybe, maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe there's something in your past that you think, I cannot believe I did that. I cannot believe that was me. I look back on some things that I've done in my life and I'm embarrassed that I would ever have done something that foolish. And yet God takes people and he transforms them through his grace. And like Paul, you and I can say, I am what I am. And by God's grace, it was not in vain. That's what God's grace can do to you. Paul says at the end of verse 10, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God in my life. Paul's not bragging there. Paul's not saying, look at me. I was the most wonderful apostle of all. I deserve all the praise. No, that's not what Paul was doing. Paul was saying this. Yes, my ministry has exceeded that of all the other apostles. Yes, I have written much. Yes, I have traveled all over the Middle East and I have done all these things. But it wasn't because of me. Paul says it was the grace of God working through me. It's kind of like the child that you give them 20 bucks 
and they go and they buy you a birthday present and they so joyfully give you the birthday present even though you were the one that gave them the money? That's how Paul kind of looks at this with God. It's like God gave him all this grace and he's worked hard and he's given all this stuff, but it was only because God gave it to him in the first place. So Paul looks at his life. He was a very humble man. It wasn't a false humility. You've been around people that have false humility, right? And you tell them, oh, you did a great job. And they do one of these, oh, no, no, I didn't. Yes, no, it's terrible. No, no, you, you, you're one. No, no, I'm not. That's false humility. Paul didn't display false humility. He said, yes, I accomplished much, but it was because of the grace of God working through me. He gives all the credit right back to God. So two proofs, Paul says, you look at the scriptures, they have proven the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, you look at all the witnesses, the apostles, the 500, you look at me, Paul says, we're all witnesses. We all have seen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And there's one final one, and that is in verse 11, Paul says, the message that we preach is the same. Look at Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, all the other witnesses that you've heard, so we preached and so you believed. What's he saying? He's saying this. We're all preaching the same message. It's not as though there were two or three lunatics who kind of gathered in some room and said, you know, let's make up this story about Jesus raising from the dead and we'll go tell everybody and they'll believe it. No, Paul says, you've got 500 plus people all giving the exact same message. You might be able to find one or two lunatics who might make something up, but you're not going to find 500 plus who all give the same message. Paul says that is rock-solid evidence that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Paul does all of that from verses 1 through 11 just so he can get to verse 12. And we'll cover verse 12 the next time. Verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which he's just proven, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead of your bodies? Okay, so he's going to now make the jump. So let me give you some things to think about until we come back to this at a later time. Jesus is alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. It's been placed in my hands. If that is true, and if what Paul has just proven to us is true, that Jesus is alive and that he is sitting there, then think about it like this. Whatever I'm facing in life right now, whatever it is, I have a living leader who is aware of it, who is involved in it, and who can control it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is real, and it's living through me, and it's controlling me. So if I am facing down an F5 tornado, and it destroys my home, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, my grace is sufficient to strengthen you, to keep you, to protect you, and I live in that. Okay? If I am at home and my conversation with my wife turns into an F5 tornado, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says, you're a sinner, but I've died for that sin. And if you will repent, I'll forgive you. And your relationship can be better. And so I do that. And I live inside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I'm graduating from high school, which just happened this weekend, right? If I'm graduating from high school, high school, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I will give you wisdom. I will give you knowledge to help you in whatever it is you're, you're wanting to do next. If that is you are going to choose a college, if that is you're going to go to work, if that is you're pursuing a relationship, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I am capable of taking you through whatever decisions you have coming next. And if you didn't graduate high school, let's say you flunked this year. You feel like a real dodo bird. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, I can sustain you. If you believe in me, I'll give you everything that you need. My grace can work through you. And next year, I want you to work hard as though working for the Lord and you work because my grace is flowing through you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It affects every single aspect of life. That's why we say it's of first importance. And it's all contingent on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Whatever your situation, I want you to remember the lines of a familiar hymn that we sing in this church. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, his living wonderful face. And the things of this earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, your glory and your grace are seen most magnificently in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We're on the cross, all of our sin, every single bit of it, was laid on your son, Jesus Christ. He died for it, and then he rose again to show that his death was sufficient to pay the penalty for sin. And so by faith today, we believe, we trust in that not by any works that we do, not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but by faith and faith alone. We trust in Jesus Christ to do that which we could never do. And now your grace flows through us and we do that which we thought we could never do. We we honor you and we obey you and, and we do great and marvelous things because you're operating in our lives. And we thank you for that this morning. May your grace be with us today and always. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.